Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Phoenix, Arizona, it's time for Phoenix Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Thanks for tuning in to Legitimate on Phoenix Business Radio X. I'm your host, Rochelle Poulton, and I'm a consumer rights attorney at AZCLG, here to bring you the full perspective on issues that I handle every day. And so welcome to Series 2, The World of Debt. And today's topic is debt collection. Debt collection is a multi-billion dollar industry and rapidly growing. And today, we want to explore the perspective of people on the collection side of debt. And with us, we have two awesome guests to give us their legitimate perspectives. First up, we've got Brian Partridge. He's attorney at the law office of James R. Vaughn, PC, and Michael Poulton, or Mike Poulton, the imagining partner at Poulton and Arroyan PLLC. So Brian, welcome. Thank you for being here. My office has been dealing with the law office of James R. Vaughn for years, and you guys are for sure the toughest debt collection firm we deal with. But you do it right, you follow the law, and most of the time we are really able to get something worked out for our clients that works for them. So it's why we actually refer to your office, people who are seeking debt collection help, instead of your many competitors. So kudos, and please tell our listeners all about you and your history with debt collection. Oh, well, thank you for that. those kudos. And I'm, I'm Brian Partridge. I've been with the law office for about nine years. I've been an attorney there uh, for my entire career, and so I thought it would be easy when I first got into it, and I realized it's a lot harder sometimes to follow all of the ins and outs and regulations, but uh, we try to be fair and reasonable with people, and I think that makes a big difference. So just personally, I you know I have six kids at home, and that uh, puts a lot of strain on my finances, so I understand when people come in and they to court and they can't uh, pay right away. I get that. And so I think that makes a difference too. But uh, yeah, I'm just happy to be here and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Awesome. Thank you, Brian. And Mike, welcome. Your firm represents business owners in commercial litigation. And full disclosure, Mike is my husband. Super awesome, by the way. So Mike, tell us about your street cred. Well, thank you, babe sickle. I get to call <laughs> her that. Nobody else does. Um, <clears throat> my street cred that's a, that's a strong phrase to use to describe a commercial litigation firm, but uh, I am the managing partner of Poulton & Arroyan. We are a four-attorney litigation boutique. We do uh, about two-thirds contingency plaintiff's litigation, and that means uh, people who've been injured in the healthcare system, uh, people with other types of serious injuries typically come to us because they can't afford to litigate the case themselves. Those are very expensive cases to pursue. We fund it. Uh, we take the risk on it, and we pursue that until we get them uh, compensation for, for what they've endured. But the other part of our practice is representing businesses, and we do that typically in court, uh, in disputes among uh, businesses that are working together or working against each other. So complaints between competitors regarding trade practices, uh, disputes regarding invoicing or contracts, all types of different arrangements among companies that result in litigation, we can help them deal with that. And that's uh, that's my street cred. I, I appreciate you um, <laughs> throwing it that way. Awesome. Super impressive, of course. That's why I married you. So before we get into debt collection, let's talk normal debt cycles. So typically a person borrows money by taking out a loan, opening a credit card, or they just get billed for something, and then they pay it off. The end. That is a normal debt cycle. But bad debt happens when people don't pay. And this is where debt collection comes in. But this doesn't just apply to people. 
uh, businesses also default on contracts as well. So Brian, what is debt collection? How would you define that? I think that's a mostly from what I deal with with consumers, it's it's the process of letting them know their rights and obligations and then giving them a chance to, you know, figure out how they're going to pay the loan back or what they're going to do to take care of it. So, um, I mean, there's a technical definition, but that's just kind of how I look at it. Basically giving people a chance to communicate their issues and, and work through their processes so that they can pay back what they owe. Very straightforward. Mike, do you have anything that you want to add to that? I think that's a great definition. And it kind of dovetails with something that I forgot to mention during the introduction here, and that is that I do not consider myself a debt collection attorney, and our firm is not a debt collection firm. You may have noticed in hearing the distinction between what I said and what Brian said, uh, he's referring to people who owe money and haven't paid it or can't pay it and making arrangements to get that paid. There is some of that in commercial litigation, but most of what I do is when there's a dispute about whether anything is owed at all or what the amount is, uh, much looser circumstances. When I'm done with my job, the result is often a judgment, a ruling by the court that somebody owes a certain amount of money to somebody else. That's when it becomes debt collection, and I don't do that. My job is done at that point, and I refer those clients to the law office of James R. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah. So what do debt collectors do to collect debt? I mean, there's a lot of different options, right? Debt collectors, some debt collectors make phone calls. Some debt collectors send letters. Some debt collectors file lawsuits uh, and get judgments. Um, some have judgments already, and they try to garnish wages, or they go to you know, seize bank accounts, or they even sometimes uh, have us, and, and we've done this a handful of times, you know, seize real property with an writ of execution. So there's all sorts of ways that um, that can be collected, but it depends kind of on different business models and different uh, situations that arise. So one of the delineations I see in my office is what we refer to as pre-judgment and post-judgment collection options. Uh, do you want to elaborate on that, what someone can do before they get a judgment? Uh, yeah, sometimes, you know, depending on the loan agreement, of, let's say it's an automobile loan, they can repossess the vehicle and sell the vehicle at an auction to uh, recoup some of their losses. Um, sometimes they can uh, ask the court to issue a writ of attachment pre-judgment to secure property while they litigate whether it's, you know, belongs to this person or that person. Um, that's usually as far as I see, or maybe a home foreclosure, for example, might count too, uh, because a lot of those are done outside of the courthouse because of a power of sale and a deed of trust. So those are kind of the pre-judgment remedies I see most often. Post-judgment, I mean, you get a civil judgment and the law lets you pursue different avenues to collect on that judgment. So it just, it changes things a little bit uh, after judgment. But yeah, we have the same kind of delineation in our office. <laughs> Which can and can't do. So it seems that debt collection companies and law firms offering debt collection services has increased exponentially in the last few years. Why do you think that is? I mean, if I had to guess, I'd say that part of it is, you know, there's it's a multi-billion dollar industry. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of need for debt collection. Uh, I think the recession made a difference, too, from 2009, 2010. There's a lot more bad debt that was out there for a while uh, or, you know, debt that needed to be collected. And so that happened. And also the 
uh, federal CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, came into existence, which made it a lot harder to be good at debt collection in ways. And so firms kind of specialized in these different parts of debt collection that they do. And so I'd say it's a combination of those things that really drives the growth of the market. So what I see, um, you know, as a consumer rights attorney is I'll see some pretty big names on law firms that are suing on behalf of like major banks. But when it comes to post-judgment remedies, there aren't a whole lot of companies out there that actually go through the process of doing wage garnishments or bank account garnishments or foreclosures on property or anything like that. So when someone comes to your office, Mike, who is looking for uh, assistance in resolving a business dispute, you know, what do you see most commonly that business owners fight over that they need a litigation counsel for? I think it comes in two categories, and I would say the two categories are equally common, and one of those is a trade dispute. So a business uh, is either a supplier to someone else or they have a supplier and something has gone wrong with that arrangement. They're selling things between each other, goods or services, and somebody didn't pay somebody else or somebody invoiced more than they thought they were supposed to. Uh, Somebody's mad about that kind of a business deal. Uh, That's pretty common. The, The other type of situation that arises, though, is between businesses that do not have an ongoing business relationship. Um, These may be competitors in the same market. I'm currently dealing with a pretty substantial case along those lines uh, involving a dispute about branding. There are also circumstances among business neighbors that can result in litigation. If you have someone who is leasing space near you or operating their business near your business, all kinds of situations can arise that can get those people mad at each other. And then they start going to their attorney's offices and coming up with ways to make each other's lives difficult. And I'm either the one figuring out how to resolve that problem or I'm the one creating that problem on somebody's behalf. Uh, <laughs> but either way, that's what we do. We, we're the toolbox uh, full, of, full of different options to use in a business dispute to help get a resolution. And so, Brian, where does your firm fit in into that process? As far as we, we have some, some business debt, most of the debt we deal with happens to be consumer obligations, but a handful of our clients have retained us for business disputes, and they're similar to those ones. Uh, somebody sends an invoice that's not in a, 100% in con- compliance with the contract, or they want us to review their processes to make sure they're in compliance with some regulation. Um, you know, or they want us to sue because they've, they've given up on negotiation and, and they think, hey, the judge needs to look at this issue and decide it. So, uh, you know, a handful of times they'll come to us. But usually by the time they come to us, they have a number in mind that they want paid back, you know, mm-hmm. or they, they want money from this other company because of something that went wrong along the way. So when you're dealing with business now that you're past that point of the dispute process, right? Like you've gone through, you've gone to court, you've litigated, gone through the discovery, the whole nine yards and a judgment's entered. In most cases, I think people forget that litigation is a process and for the client or who, whether it's a business owner or an individual, it's a very stressful one. And most of the time litigation ends with everyone being slightly upset, which is how you know you did it right. So, Mike, when you're dealing with this phase of it and uh, you get people the judgments, usually what is their expectation from a business owner's standpoint of what happens next? (laughs) Well, the expectation usually is that litigation is a magic process that will completely resolve all of their issues and that as soon as the judge rules in their favor, 
they will be declared the universal winner, and a shower of confetti and balloons will await them outside the courthouse, along with a giant check for everything they're owed plus all their attorney fees immediately. And that never happens. That's just not how it works. Litigation is a very rough, slow process the whole way through, including at the end, after you're done. Getting a judgment is just another piece of paper, and a lot of these disputes start with pieces of paper that already say somebody else owes them money. So going through the whole litigation process can feel like a Sisyphean task that accomplishes nothing, because at the end, you've still just got a piece of paper that says somebody owes you money. You don't have a check, and they're not going to be real happy to write you one. So that's where real debt collection attorneys come in. It's their job to figure out how to extract the value that you're legally entitled to from somebody else who doesn't want to give it to you. Fair enough. <laughs> Anything to add, Brian? Uh I, I, I quibble a little bit with the word extract, but I guess it's true. Um, yeah, you know, there are times when um, after the judgment is entered, people come to us and they say, I've got this judgment. Doesn't that mean I'm owed this money? And I think I tell them the answer is yes. But sometimes the problem is getting the other person to give you the money that they're supposed to give you. So occasionally people will um, call us and say, you got a judgment against me. I want to pay it off. But that's pretty rare. Um, most of the time we have to, you know, apply some pressure in the, in the, in the legal sense, not, uh, you know, leg breaking or anything crazy like that, but just, you know, let them know that we're there and we're not going away and that we have these remedies that the law allows us to pursue. So, um, yeah, I guess, I guess I agree with your assessment of our, of our necessity in the process. So I'm on the other side. I do debt collection defense litigation. So we represent primarily uh, debtors who are getting sued by major companies for a variety of things, credit cards, repossessions. You can default on it. You can be sued on it. So that's where we come in. So we do tell our clients the same thing. Like judgment is just another piece of paper saying that they owe you money. But we need to resolve this sucker because one of the major things we want to debunk today is some of the myths that are out there about these judgments, but more on that in a minute. So when you are dealing with debt collection, how is your firm different than what other companies are doing out there? I think the main difference uh, we have is that a lot of firms are all about the money and the quick return and the, you know, we got to get as much money out of people as we can as quickly as possible. And a lot of my clients over the years and a lot of the firm's kind of ethos is, Let's be reasonable with people and let's give people some time to recover and figure out their budgets and do their, you know, uh, improve their lives. And uh, when they're ready to pay us and they have the means to pay us, then then we'll do that. So um, we engage if people talk to us and communicate with us and work with us, then we uh, uh, typically will let people, you know, pay over time. Even when there's a judgment entered, we'll take, you know, payments of as low as I've seen our clients go as low as $100 a month, that kind of thing. So people can pay for a couple of years and still, you know, manage their lives because I'm not in the business to hurt people or make people emotionally stressed out. Um, but I, I do think that another thing that sets us apart is um, we have a group of people in our office whose job it is to find these assets and try to ask to try to um, isolate them so we can figure out, is this something we want to pursue? How likely is it we're going to get it, you know, paid out of this process? How difficult is it going to be? And kind of get a feel for that side of things too, which I don't think a lot of collection firms have that 
other part of the process figured out as well as we do. Yep, I can tell you no on that. So when you're looking at assets, like what kind of assets, if you could help our listeners understand what's oh, at stake here? Sure. Um, all, everything from, you know, real estate that they might own to bank accounts to jobs and, and regular payments, all the way, you know, we look at all sorts of things. So one asset people have is, you know, their age. If they're younger, they're more likely to get a job at some point in the future. Uh, if they're older, that changes things a little bit because they might have Social Security um, you know, income that's exempt or other things like that. Um, it's a variety of factors, but those are the main things, you know, bank account, job, real estate, ownership are all major important facts I need to know on a case. That's right. They can take your house if they get a judgment. I hear people say that and I'm like, no, no, no. Like it's, you have homestead protection, all this other stuff, but please stop disregarding judgments. So let's talk law in the FDCPA or the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act. Uh, please explain to our listeners, what is the FDCPA and who it applies to? I'll do my best. It's a pretty big statute. Um, it's been <laughs> yes, around it for, is. it's been around for a while and it applies to debt collectors, which I think the statute finds as people who regularly attempt to collect a debt from a consumer and a consumer is someone who is a natural person. So no businesses, uh, who owns a debt based on family, personal or household uh, that they acquired for family, household, or personal reasons. So no business debt. It basically says if you're a, if you're in that business, if you regularly collect debts owed to another person or that have been uh, charged off and sold and all that kind of stuff, then you have certain restrictions. And basically, they boil down to be reasonable, be fair, don't deceive people, and uh, you know don't. Don't harass people or make them feel terrible about themselves uh, as a way to uh, collect the debt. I mean, the specifics are in the statute and anyone can read them, I think, but that's the general idea. Generally, like a smell test. Like if it seems like it's probably not right, it might not be. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so when uh, one of the points that you touched upon was uh, that businesses, business debt. So when you've got a... Um, Mike, in your situation with a business owner who's being pursued by another business owner for collection of debt, they can't use the FDCPA as a defense or a counterclaim in one of those suits, correct? Exactly right. They can't use the FDCPA and they can't use really much of anything else that applies to consumer law. Uh, consumers have a whole bunch of special protections in the law to prevent businesses from taking advantage of them and to prevent attorneys from taking advantage of them uh, based on an imbalance of power. Fundamentally is what it comes down to. Businesses tend to have money uh, more so than individuals do, and businesses tend to have a lot more resources at their disposal to make life difficult for people who owe them money. So our laws are set up to protect the individual. Each and every one of us in this country is a consumer. Um, we all engage in consumer activities, and so we all have those protections. But as soon as you get outside the scope of consumer stuff and you start getting into business stuff, it's a totally different world because the assumption is that if you're doing business, if you're self-employed, if you've got a little uh, home business that you've set up, it doesn't matter how small it is. If you're doing business, you jump into the business arena, you're held to the same standards as everybody else. It doesn't matter if you're dealing with Exxon on the other side of your deal. The expectation is that you will be just as careful, just as well-informed, just as prudent in your dealings as whoever your counterparty is. So none of these kinds of consumer protections are applicable once you get into the business realm at all. 
excellent explanation. So on the other side of that is debt collector, like who can be a debt collector? And so a lot of times I'll see questions from people where they're being pursued by an individual, you know, their friend lent them 600 bucks and now their friend is calling them all the time and they can't exercise the FDCPA against them either, can they, Brian? No, not usually. I mean, that person would have to lend a lot of people a lot of money um, <laughs> and be in that. And actually, original creditors like the, the friend even ex- in that example are usually exempt from the FDCPA. So it uh, usually applies to the business that works for that creditor or works for their successor. Um, and so, you know, it's not designed for that situation of the friend lending a, a small amount of money to someone, even a large amount of money to someone. But there's other consumer protection law that might apply. Yes, but not the FDCPA. Right. <laughs> so when you're dealing with Target calling you 40 times because you missed your payment in a day, that's probably not going to trigger an FDCPA lawsuit. Correct. Because they are the original creditor and not a debt collector. Right. Awesome. So what can't debt collectors do? Top five. Um, oh, <laughs> top five. Okay. So well, my favorite uh, prohibition in the in the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act is you can't use a postcard to communicate with a, a, a consumer. Um, it's not top five. Nobody does that anymore. But um, it's still funny. It's still there. So um, and it still happens. Yeah, I'm I'm sure somebody use, does that accidentally or something. But we're very careful not to use postcards in our firm. So. Um, I think that the one of the main things you can't do is you can't uh, cause the phone to ring uh, repeatedly in a, with an intent to harass someone. So that 40 times you call the person in a day, if you're a debt collector, that would be probably a violation of the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act. Um, you can't uh, communicate with third parties. That's one that is, causes some confusion with people a lot of times. I can't call your mom to collect a debt that you owe. I can't, uh, you know, tell your best friend to have you call us because you owe us money. Like those kinds of things are prohibited. And if they, if, if I know you have an attorney um, like Rochelle, I can't communicate with you without their permission. So I have to turn down people sometimes. They'll call me and they'll say, I just want to pay this off. And I'll say, I can't speak to you until I talk to your attorney. And they think I'm being stuffy, but I'm, I'm trying to follow the rules. So, uh, you know. That happens are, quite a bit too. Yeah. Skipping the process. <laughs> so what are the most common types of debt that get sent to debt collection? I mean, I can't speak for the entire industry here, but I think that the most common I see are credit card debt and auto loans. Um, and I think medical debt's probably in there too, but we don't handle a lot of that. Mm-hmm. So uh, it'd probably be those three if I had to guess. Yeah, Arizona isn't really big on medical debt lawsuits, but you see a lot of medical debt on credit reports as collection accounts. I'm sure it's coming soon, so watch out. I would agree with that. We deal with a lot of credit card debt. A lot of people have it. I think it's that post-2008 crash recovery. Everything was going great until it wasn't. So let's talk about a question that we get a lot, the assignment and sale of debts. So if you could explain to our listeners why can you collect a debt that was transferred or sold by the original creditor to a third party? Well, it, I mean, that can mystify some people. So let me do my best. So um, much like other kinds of property, you can transfer uh, rights to collect a debt. So uh, for example, auto loans are one good example here because lots of people are familiar with them. Uh, it, the dealership sells you the car and they write the contract and they 
give you the terms and they sign it and you sign it. And then like that day or maybe the next day, they'll immediately transfer that right to a finance company, you know, Ford Motor Credit or whoever to uh, manage. And then you'll get a letter from Ford Motor Credit that says, you missed your payment. And you're like, well, wait, I owe the dealership the money. Well, not anymore. Because what happened was the dealership assigned the rights to that contract to Ford Motor Credit and in exchange for something. I don't know what Ford Motor Credit pays or whoever pays for those, but there's usually a transfer there. Or uh, another good example is the home mortgage. So lots of mortgage origination companies will set up the loan and they will... Um, you know, they will give you the terms and they'll, you'll deal with the one person. And then a few days later, you'll get a notice in the mail that your first payment is actually made, supposed to be made to like Wells Fargo or Capital One or some other bank. And, and the same process happened there. They transferred the rights to payment to another uh, entity in exchange for something. Uh, although assignments don't, strictly speaking, require anything to be exchanged, but usually something is. So we see it a lot with like a credit card debt, you know, we'll pick on Target and it gets goes to collection, it gets charged off, and they transfer it to, let's pick one of the major ones, like Midland Credit Management or Portfolio Recovery. And so people are always curious about why they have to pay this third-party debt collector because they didn't sign a contract with them. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, so once the rights are assigned uh, and transferred, it's as if the person that received the rights, let's say uh, Receivable Credit Management or Midland Funding, uh, those guys are as if they were the original creditor. So if you owed Target the money, you now owe the money to them. And that's why they're asking you for it. And so some people get tripped up on that too. They come to me and they say, well, I, I never had anything to do with that company. Well, that's true, but you owed the money to someone and that someone gave them the rights to get it from you. So that's what I tell people when they are, are a little lost. Us too. So anything to add, Mike? Yeah, I think this is something that I've run into a few times with people not really understanding what's going on with debts being transferred and shuffled around. And a lot of people think this is somehow nefarious, that there's some kind of underhanded dealing going on or something because now a company they've never heard of is demanding money from them. It is not that complicated. Uh, if you loan your friend Jim 20 bucks and he's slow paying you back and you want the cash, you can go to your friend Dan and say, hey, Jim's not paying me my 20 bucks back. If you've got 15 in your pocket, you can give me the 15 and then collect from him directly anytime. That's a transfer of a debt. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's, that's what's going on here. It's just not that complicated. Uh, but it happens on a huge commercial scale. The whole industry is built around it. So it's not, nef it's not nefarious. There's, there's nothing underhanded about it. But debts get shuffled. Um, they get bought and sold all the time, and that's just how the industry works. Yes. So when you get sued by those companies, it's probably a valid lawsuit, just FYI. So if you're thinking about filing your own pro per answer in a debt collection lawsuit like that, um, don't use you never did business with that company as an excuse. Read the attachments. If there is an assignment there, go ahead and just call a lawyer. Get advice. Get advice before you act. Um, free consults over here. So... <laughs> Does your firm buy debts? No. And actually, um, I, I thought about this uh, a little bit because some people ask me, well, some judges even will say, well, does your firm own this? And no, we, we don't own any debt. Uh, we represent people who own debt who weren't the original creditor uh, on a fairly regular basis. And actually, I don't know of any Arizona law firm that owns any debt. I mean, 
I guess suppose they could, but I've never heard of that happening in my experience as, an, as a collection attorney. Yeah, I think it would just complicate the issue a little bit. It was an interesting question. I was like, I'm curious about this. I'm going to ask. Yeah. So let's go ahead and start debunking some myths. So one of the things that I see online that people ask quite often is, well, I owe it, but can I just settle for pennies on the dollar? Not if it's James R. Vaughn on the other side. <laughs> well, that's not strictly speaking true. I, I guess it depends on how many pennies on, in the dollar you're talking about. Is it 90 of them? Yeah, something like that is probably in my ballpark. <laughs> so when we deal with debt collectors, you know, I think maybe 10 years ago or even seven or eight years ago, people could have, you know, a major debt with a mortgage company or a medical collection or a credit card and settle for maybe 10 or 20 percent. But I haven't seen anything like that on my end as a consumer rights attorney in quite some time. What about in your office? I mean, all of our clients have different parameters as mm -hmm. far as the numbers they're willing to accept. And, and a lot of times it surprises people when I ask them for their financial information, because what I want to do is give my clients the best chance I can to, to recover what they should get. And so if there's some dispute, which is usually when I'm involved, there's some sort of dispute about owing the money or how much is owed or the interest calculation or something. And so if, if there's a risk there that the case might have to all, go all the way through a trial, I tell my client, look, it might make sense to take this offer that's, you know, lower than you normally would want to accept. Uh, or if the person has a, you know, a hard, hardship or a financial uh, difficulty that's going to last a long time. I might tell the client, it makes sense to, you know, deal with this now instead of waiting 10 years or 20 years to get paid. Uh, and so those numbers change from time to time. But yeah, they're typically, I want to try and collect as much money as I can for my client, because if they take a discount, then they're losing money, you know, in the sense that there was money lent to this person. And now it's not all being paid back. Plus, I'm going to take uh, my lawyer attorney's fees uh, out of that recovery too. So typically, so, um, you know, the percentages vary, but yeah, they're, they tend to be a little higher now than they used to be. Thank you for that. So debt validation and wet ink signatures. So people will send, <laughs> they'll hire a company and the company will send out like five or six page letters requesting uh, validation of debt. And they're always shocked when no one responds. So they think that that then um, usually means that they don't owe it. So can you help explain that correlation? Sure. The Fair Debt Collection Practices Act uh, requires debt collectors to validate debts or verify debts uh, once they're disputed within a, a short window of time after you get your initial letter from the debt collector. Um, and if that doesn't happen, that's a violation of the FDCPA, but it's not, a, 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 you know, something that requires them to just write off the debt and never collect it again. Um, also, the verification or validation requirements aren't as uh, strenuous as most people think. So I, I've seen those letters that are, you know, seven pages long and they demand an affidavit from the original banker who processed the loan and all these kinds of things, which is you know, lots of fun for me to read, but it's never going to happen because validation just requires me to confer with my client and verify that the debt is valid and then inform you in writing that that's happened and that the debt is valid. And if it's not valid, then we'll stop. We, we won't keep going. Um, and if a judgment's been entered, it's even less uh, strenuous because I have to send you a letter saying, yeah, I conferred with my client and the judgment's valid. Here's a copy. 
and, and essentially that's all I've got to send you because the judge has signed off on the validity of that debt. Um, so people will ask for all sorts of things and sometimes we'll give them some of those things, but oftentimes it's just a letter that's a couple pages from me that says, hey, we've reviewed your case, we've seen your dispute, and um, you know we've talked with our client and they've confirmed that it's the valid debt, so here you go. And people don't always like that very much. No, they don't. But I can say that from my end, when we do debt validation, we do it because so many times it is not the right person or it's expired or something went wrong somewhere where the wrong amount's being collected. Uh, It happens way more often than you would think, which is why I was saying, you know, your firm does it right and you dot all the I's and cross all the T's. But some collection companies don't do that. So, I would recommend people do send out debt validation, but it doesn't need to be seven pages. A couple paragraphs will do just fine. You don't need to cite law in it. People just want to know what you want to know. (laughs) Or uh, I would say uh, from my side of it, if you can tell me why you have a dispute about something, it helps me out a lot. Because if you send me a letter that says, I dispute this, signed consumer, uh, you know, I'll go through the process of of trying to validate that, but I don't know exactly why you're disputing it. So if you can tell me, hey, I'm disputing this because the dealership defrauded me and I have a judgment against them or or I have a lawsuit pending or, you know, I'm, I'm disputing this because I think the interest was calculated incorrectly and here's what I think I owe, you know, or some sort of thing like that that's more specific. I can get more specific information from my client out of that kind of dispute. So if, you, if you're thinking about sending a letter, try and be specific. Um, that would be my advice. I wouldn't admit that you owe it when you send that letter, though. <laughs> oh, sure. I was, you know, best case scenario, right? <laughs> so waiting out the statute of limitations, uh, I just kind of want to touch on the statute of limitations a little bit because it's something that everyone always asks. And to be clear, every debt is subject to a statute of limitations depending on the debt type and, of course, the state that you're located in. And it is a legal analysis. So from your perspective, when people are like, I thought this was expired, what do you tell them? I mean... If I'm in court with that person, we've already reviewed the file and we've already applied the legal analysis on our end. So if if they think the debt's too old, I ask them to show me how they got to that conclusion because that's the end result, right? Um, and because and we take it really seriously because the the statute of limitations is an affirmative defense, yes, but we don't want to collect debt that's too old. And so we close accounts. We tell our clients, no, we will not take this account because it is too old. Um, we do that kind of analysis in-house before we even send our first letter. Um, and so very rarely do we have one that's expired. But if if they don't have a reasonable explanation for how they got to that conclusion, then I just tell them, look, my client's position is it's still within the statute of limitation. And if you really want to fight about it, we can take it to the judge and let the judge decide based on the facts. Fair enough. Anything to add on that point, Mike? No. Perfect. (laughs) So I think the main point here is if you think the statute of limitations is going to expire and you're using that as a reason to not pay something, uh, you might get sued. And when you do get sued, uh, that they sued you within the statute of limitations. So the statute of limitations time frame is limiting how long someone can sue you. So if they sue you within that time frame... It was within the statute of limitations. So there is some confusion, I think, there out there with consumers where they were sued for a credit card debt from 2012, but now it's 2019, and they're wondering, how can you still collect that? The statute of limitations was only six years. 
it's like, well, there's a judgment. That's why. (laughs) So how long uh, do judgments last in Arizona? Ten years from the date of entry. It used to be five, but the legislature changed it to ten last year, I believe. Yeah, sneaky. Rude. (laughs) So how, this is probably something we're not going to agree on, but renewal. How many times do you think you can renew that judgment? As many times as I can within the time frame given by the statute. So basically indefinitely. What about latches? I mean, you could make the argument about latches, but latches is an equitable defense. And you'd have to show that not only was my delay unreasonable, that it somehow prejudiced your client in some significant way, which with a judgment, I find that would be really difficult, especially because the statute specifically says I can continually renew the judgment. Yes, please, Mike, jump on in. (laughs) So how about a situation where you get a judgment or let's say your client got a judgment a long time ago. Mm -hmm. Let's not make it your fault. And they've done no collection activity for years. This judgment just sat around. They let it sit for 10 years without even attempting to collect it. They renew it. They let it sit for another 10 years without even trying to collect it. They renew it again. We're now 25, 28 years down the road from when that judgment was entered. Uh, People have moved around the country. They've retired. Um, Your debtor now lives in Florida on a fixed income. And all of a sudden, this person comes to you with this valid judgment, it appears, that they have renewed successfully but have never attempted to collect ever. But it's been accruing post-judgment interest the whole time. And now the amount owed is many times what it was 28 years earlier. What do you think a latch is then? Initially, my reaction is that the judgment had to be entered, I assume, based on your fact situation, that it was entered with knowledge of the, of the judgment because that would be a different defense. But uh, the, the burdens on the, the consumer or the judgment debtor, in this case, to, to pay that judgment. And so the, the post-judgment interest by itself is not prejudicial. That's allowed by the statute. The judge approved it. And the fact that it took 25 years for them to do anything with it, that by itself wouldn't be enough for me to say that would be latches. Now, it may lead to other problems because if the person's now in Florida, we might have to domesticate. Or if they're retired, they might not have anything we can go go get uh, as far as collection work goes. But just on the face of it, I don't know that that's sufficient. I can't wait to litigate that case. <laughs> Cannot yeah, wait. I, I would advance the latches <laughs> argument on that I, one, but I think it's, it is an open question. I don't think we have any clear no. answer in Arizona because it hasn't been long enough yet since this change for any of that to percolate through the system. I agree with you. And one day I'm sure someone will raise that argument and I'll have to argue it. But, um, you know, on first blush, I'm not sure that the mere passage of time is enough. So... That would be my initial answer. Of course, I can't give legal advice on, you know, on this. No, podcast, always consult with an of attorney. Of course, none of this is legal advice for anyone who is listening. <laughs> we are not your lawyer. This did not create an attorney-client privilege, just FYI. So disputing debts with credit bureaus, I get this a lot. So when someone disputes a debt with a credit bureau and they tell you that they did, what what do you do? I mean, the Fair Credit Reporting Act allows consumers to, to uh, dispute debts with credit bureaus. Um, and my office doesn't report to credit bureaus and most of our clients don't either, um, because that's a minefield we just don't feel like walking into. Um, and so usually when someone says, Hey, I disputed this with a credit bureau, I, I basically say, well, that means that whoever got your dispute had an obligation to, um, you know, respond to the credit bureau. 
And if the credit bureau, if it's still on your credit, then, you know, that was resolved. Uh, the other issue there is credit reporting agencies rely a lot on what the, what the other entities tell them. So the businesses, Target or whoever, will report on a credit bureau that, you know, this person missed a payment or that they're six months behind or whatever. And the credit reporting agencies collect all that data. So uh, there's not, to my knowledge, there's no private right to sue the credit bureau if they don't investigate or they don't update your credit when you dispute with them. But if you dispute with the company that you owe the money to, they have an obligation to do something with that dispute. But I don't do a ton of work with the FCRA because we don't report, like I said. <laughs> so when we see it when people are disputing debts with the credit bureaus that they owe. Typically, we covered this in our, our last podcast, but it won't go away. Like you can dispute it and maybe it gets deleted. But if it was valid, it'll just pop right back up. Right. You don't have to report on a, to a credit reporting agency to have a valid debt um, at all. You can You can be owed money and never, ever talk to the credit bureau and still be owed that money, you know, five years later. Um, it doesn't matter. Because credit reporting is voluntary. It is a voluntary process, FYI. So what can be reported can be unreported. So what else can you, do you see out there in terms of myths that uh, people have about misconceptions regarding debt collection? So often, I, it's not so much anymore, but I used to run into this a ton. People will come to me and say, well, uh, you know, the bank charged this off, so I don't owe it anymore. I got a statement from them showing I have a zero balance, right? Here it is. And they'll show it to me and I'll say, well, that says charged off right next to it. And charged off is an accounting principle. Uh, basically, the the federal government has decided that banks can't just carry loans around and say, we have all these assets we're owed, right? We're owed all this money by all these people. Uh, if the debt's more than 180 days old, Without any payments, then the IRS requires the creditor bank to report that as a charge-off so that they can't carry it around in their books and say, look at all this money we're owed because they're not likely to get it. Um, and I, I think the time frame might be a little different for certain kinds of debt, but usually it's six months with no payments. So that that comes up sometimes. People will say, well, I don't owe it. And that's not true. It's just, just the way that they're reporting to the IRS that, look, they don't carry it around as, a, as an asset anymore. Yeah, someone should tell the FHA that. So when a person has a debt with a debt collector and they receive notice from the debt collector about it, what should they do? Well, we already covered that I'm not their attorney and I can't give them legal advice. But I, I think the first thing that they should think about is if they owe the money, if they recognize the debt, you know, communicating with the debt collector, it seems like a scary thing. But honestly, that's the best way to get it resolved, right? Um because if you can communicate with the debt collector, they can talk about options. We can talk about, you know, your hardship that we talked about earlier or your situation in your family. I mean, oftentimes I'll go to mediations or pretrial conferences when I'm in litigation with someone and I'll say, hey, how do you want to resolve this? And they'll say, well, I, I have this problem or I have that problem or I have this issue. And I'll that's the first time I've heard any of that. And so, uh, you know, that changes the the parameters that my clients give me for settlement purposes, because now I know more information. And so if I had known that before I sued the person, it would have made a huge difference to them. They might not have even been sued um, in the first place, which would save them a lot of stress and potentially some money hiring you guys to, you know, or hiring you, Rochelle, to represent them. So uh, I would say initially you should, if you recognize the debt and you know you owe something, you should communicate. And if you don't know, 
if you're like, that's not me or that's not my debt, then use that validation process and tell them, you know, you have the wrong person. This isn't my debt or whatever your dispute is so that they can start the ball rolling on that uh, issue too. Yes, I agree. Understanding what your financial hardship is is really important from a consumer standpoint, but I'm going to say just get legal advice first. (laughs) Oh, I should have probably said that. Yeah. (laughs) So let's talk debt collection lawsuits when they get sued. Um, Can you help explain alternative service? Oh, sure. Yeah. So uh, a lot of people think that uh, they have to be personally handed the document, the summons and complaint before they can respond, which is generally the rule. That's what the court wants because that's the best way to give people notice. But sometimes that's not practicable uh, because the person doesn't answer the door when the process server comes to serve them or they're not home or they're visiting friends at, at Thanksgiving time or whatever. And so if if that happens where we have verified that someone we we think that someone is there. We think that they live there. We think that we can, but we can't get a process server to catch them at home. Um, the courts do allow us to use alternative service, and so that basically what that means is we go to the court and we say, "Hey, judge, uh, this is in writing, so it's not this informal." But hey, judge, this person can't be personally served because of X Y Z reason, and then the judge signs off on an alternative method for serving that person with process. So usually that's something like sending a letter or posting it on their door, or sending certified mail, or maybe all three, depending on what the judge thinks is reasonable. And then if uh, once that order is entered, the service can be completed in compliance with that order. So if the, you know, if the order says mail the documents to their address, uh, certified mail and first class mail, if we do that, and then we tell the court we did that, then that's completed service, whether or not they got the documents in their hands uh, from a process server. Yes, I think that trips people up quite a bit because they're used to the the TV shows with the banging on the door. And it's like, but if I don't answer, it'll go away. No, you'll no. just get a default judgment. Speaking of which, how many of your lawsuits go into default? I mean, it, it varies from year to year, but it's a lot. It's the majority, I would say, for sure. Um, and, and actually, Arizona is really... Uh, nice to people who might not initially answer. It gives them a second chance to answer with the notice and application for a default and uh, entry of default. And so um, they hopefully they get that in the mail and they they respond and that happens fairly frequently too. But even, even with that, I think our uh, answer rate is probably about 20% of our cases or thereabouts. Yeah, that's super low. What do you think, Mike? On the default side, that's something that I fortunately don't have to deal with all that frequently. It's uncommon that any suits at our firm end up in default on either side. Uh, The only way our clients default is if it's an intentional strategic default, where it's been determined that it doesn't make any sense to spend money defending the suit. We'll go ahead and let them get a judgment and then battle about it afterwards. That's extremely rare in my practice. Typically, we are on the suing side and... We're the ones filing for default, but because of the types of cases that we pursue, it doesn't happen frequently. I can only think of three instances over the course of our practice uh, where we've had defaults and there were good reasons for it in each of those. Um, And incidentally, I I think this gets back to the debt collection issue, um, default in a significant case you know, where there's real money on the line, it's a pretty good indication that you're probably not going to be able to collect that very well. If there's a lot at stake, uh, there's a good reason to defend that case. And 
if you get a default judgment for, say, three or $400,000 against somebody, uh, about the only way that happens is if that person does not have three or $400,000 that's legitimately at risk in that lawsuit. Because if they were really risking the loss of that money, they would come to court and defend it. Yeah, I agree with that. But uh, on the other side of it, I've seen a lot of lawsuits where it's only a handful, you know, a small amount of money that's at stake. And people sometimes will fight me tooth and nail over that uh, for years. And that's okay, too. Um, Sometimes people just think it'll go away. Uh, Like Rochelle said, they kind of have that naive idea that if I just ignore the process, then it'll go away. But that's like the worst answer you can you can give to this kind of process, because the American legal system is built on this kind of, you know, let's search for the truth and let's let's argue about different points and let's put all these different things in front of the judge so they can make the best decision they can. And if you refuse to participate, then the judge is, you know, required in a lot of ways to to kind of give the other side the victory because uh, you're not participating in the process. So as stressful as it can be, you know, that that's that's a hard thing to kind of parse. For everyone, I'm sure some people default strategically, like you mentioned, but a lot of people probably just don't pay attention and they they figure it'll go away, but it'll come back in 10 years when I'm renewing the judgment or five years when I'm, you know, garnishing your wages. And then you might not realize that it's there because you've sat on it for five years, but uh, it's still there. And so you need to take care of it. I think it's worth noting that... uh dodging the process server who's knocking on your door is the first step in ending up with a default judgment that pops up 20 years later. Yes, I agree with that. (laughs) I think that people will just kind of get scared because it looks pretty scary when you get all this paperwork and sometimes you get three copies of it and it's really can be quite confusing. So if you've been sued, uh, business or consumer talk to a lawyer. It's not that scary. Um, there's usually a way to kind of navigate around that process. I think one of the fun parts too that we get to deal with every day is seeing some of these lawsuits. We see some, I think the smallest justice court lawsuit I saw was $347. And it cost just that same amount to file the lawsuit and serve the person. So I was pretty shocked that that happened, but it does happen. You see these ridiculous small lawsuits out there um, because people are really aggressive about it. But you can't ignore that $360 lawsuit because if they get judgment interest at 24.75%, when you look at it in five years, that sucker is going to be like four or five grand. So uh, don't uh, ignore those judgments. They grow. And the fun part about judgments these days is they tend to not be on credit reports anymore. So one of the things I I like to deal with is called zombie debt. And those are the accounts that when you go to apply for mortgage lending aren't on your credit report, but they'll show up on a title report. And that includes these judgment liens. So when you get a, a payoff statement or payoff request for a title company, how do you guys treat those? That's a good day in our book, right? So um, at that point, we've done a lot of work to get there. And we've we've gone to court. We've got a judgment. We've recorded that judgment. The uh, Whoever's um, trying to clear title and make sure there are no liens on the property uh, sends us a request for a payoff. And we, we send them an answer. We tell them, here's what's owed. Here's the per diem. You know, send us a check, please. And a lot of times, if that transaction closes, we'll get a check. Um, from the title company because they don't want to ensure uh, that 
the ownership is title is clear and the property should be transferred if they might have a lien. And so, I mean, it gets tricky because much like the statute of limitations, uh, that's a conclusion, right? Whether mm-hmm. a lien exists or whether it's enforceable on some real estate is a, a legal conclusion that has to be reached after some analysis. So uh, not all title companies even contact us. If they know that there is no lien, even if we have a recorded judgment, they they might not even send us anything in the mail. But if we see anything from them, we immediately will review the file and if appropriate, respond and ask for the money. And then you get paid in full. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so don't wait till you buy a house to resolve these kinds of things. You'll pay a lot. So when you deal with debt collection companies or I'm sorry, debt settlement companies, do you think they're effective for the consumer? Uh, I think that the, the bear here. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think that it's it depends on the company and the and the situation we're talking about. So some debt settlement companies are reputable and reasonable and uh, you know do hard work for their clients, and some sign people up and make a couple calls, and when we can't resolve it immediately, they stop talking to us or they wait till the person is sued in court and in court before they will take action. And and that is a tough situation to put my clients in because now they've put money in. They've paid to file a lawsuit and serve it on the consumer. And, you know, now we're looking at in, uh, different kind of settlement parameters because we've already filed a lawsuit. We're already in litigation. And so, I mean, I don't have anything against those companies. I think that they, a lot of them do good work and can help people out. But there are also those out there that don't do a lot of work and get paid quite a bit of money, from what I understand, um, to do very little. So I'd be careful Uh, looking into that angle of things. (laughs) Google them. So how does bankruptcy affect debt collection? So the bankruptcy is a complicated thing. There's (laughs) lots of chapters of bankruptcy. There's lots of federal requirements, regulations, courts exist for that. But generally, if you file bankruptcy and, and I'm pursuing you, I will stop because there's an automatic stay that goes into effect that prevents me from doing any collection work outside of the bankruptcy. There still might be a remedy inside the bankruptcy, and there might be some relief from stay that might be granted by the bankruptcy court. But basically, everything moves from being in state court or, you know, being kind of uh, settlement discussions between the parties outside of court to the bankruptcy court and the trustee taking over uh, all of those debts and obligations and figuring out how to pay who and when. So uh, some people tell me, that's one myth I should have probably mentioned earlier. Some people tell me, I'm going to file bankruptcy and then you'll get nothing. And that's not strictly speaking 100% accurate. So uh, there's there's procedures and there's rules for this. But the main primary effect is I immediately will stop trying to collect on the debt because the bankruptcy prevents me from doing anything without incurring the wrath of the bankruptcy judge. And I don't want to be doing that. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. So anything else that uh, either of you want to add for our listeners' sake, knowing about debt collection or business collection or anything to that effect? We kind of covered a lot of ground here. I guess I'll go first. I, I, I would reiterate, uh, if if you are in the situation where you're a consumer and you owe some money to someone, uh, be proactive about taking care of that if you can. And as far as collector, if if you're on the other side and people owe you money, it's not as simple as going to court and getting a small claims judgment to get that money paid back. So there's some there's some defenses and there's some obligations that you might have that you may not even know about. So on both sides of the fence, you got to tread carefully and, and communicate with each other. I think those would be my recommendations. Nice. 
One of my favorite proverbs is never ascribe to malice that which can be explained by incompetence. (laughs) And I think the corollary when it comes to debt collection and lawsuits and all kinds of financial disputes in general is never attribute to malice that which can be explained by insolvency. Usually, if somebody owes you money and they're giving you the runaround and they're not paying you, and you've just gotten totally exasperated about it, and you're really upset, the reason they're not paying you is they don't have the money. They can't pay you. If they could, they would have. It would make their lives a whole lot easier for you to not be trying to collect money from them, for them to not owe you money. Uh, They can keep doing business with you. You can be on good terms again. Everything would be great if they would just pay you. They're not trying to jerk you around. They just can't get the deal done because they're out of money. And suing them doesn't magically make money appear. And this really is the key point that's important for everybody to remember. Uh, You know, our whole legal system is based on suing people for money. Uh, It's what the courts can do for you. But what the courts cannot do for you is manufacture money for the person that you're suing. You can drag them to court and get your judgment, but if it ain't there, you're never getting it. Can't get blood from a stone. So very often, people will come to me because they have some kind of a dispute, and perhaps they are owed a whole bunch of money. Maybe their damages are really quite large. And typically, if our firm is involved, uh, it is a a fairly large dispute. But more often than not, uh, the answer is not to spend huge amounts of time and effort going through the process of getting a judgment against someone who can't pay for it, because uh, we're expensive. Attorneys are expensive. The legal process is expensive. And it doesn't make sense to spend all that time and money if you're never going to be able to get it back from the person who has done you wrong in the first place. And, you know, on that note, on the other end, <laughs> on the debt collection side, I deal with the people who can't manufacture money. They they are literally broke and they have a hard time. But making it work and avoiding bankruptcy is usually the goal. And we're usually able to get it accomplished because people do have financial hardship and debt collectors are usually willing to listen. So don't be afraid if you get sued and don't be afraid if you need to sue somebody. There are plenty of lawyers around in Phoenix to help you. And I think that covers it. So. Thank you for being here, and please tell our listeners how they can reach you, Brian, and then Mike. I I suppose if they want to reach me, the best way to, as an attorney, the best way to do that is to go to my my firm's website, which is www.recoveryatty.com, and uh, there's a contact us uh, page. There's also our phone number, our address is there. Uh, You can uh, email us if you would like, and we'll probably someone from my office will respond because we take that seriously. Um, <laughs> and uh, I should note that often we, we're so busy right now, we don't have a lot of room for individual judgments or judgment creditors. But if you have a handful of cases that you want us to look at, we're more than happy to help. Uh, you can find us online at pnlaw.pro. That's P like Paul, N like Nancy, L-A-W dot P-R-O. And you can call us at 602-427-5613. Most of our clients are businesses and individuals who have been seriously injured in the healthcare system. Uh, And I recognize that that's not most of our listening audience today, but we are glad to help out with the kinds of legal issues you've got. And we can refer you to other people who can do a more specific job for you if it's not within our wheelhouse. 
<laughs> well, thank you, Brian. Thank you, Mike, for being here and giving us the legitimate perspective on debt collection. And thank you to our sponsor, AZ Credit Law Group, PLLC, providing legal services to help improve credit and debt. And you can visit us online at azclg.com. And thank you to Phoenix Business Radio X and to always, as always, to you listening. And join us next time on December 4th at 3 p.m. for our next episode in the world of debt student loans. I'm Rochelle Poulton, legitimately yours, and we'll talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.